Welcome to McKnight's Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information from industry leaders. Hi, I'm Kim Marcellus, Senior Editor of McKnight's Long-Term Care News. Today, I'm joined by two guests who are eager to talk about the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, which you probably know as the PREP Act. The act was meant to grant healthcare providers immunity from liability as they fight COVID-19. But as you'll hear today, attorneys, attorneys and courts across the country are grappling with where that immunity begins and ends. It's an important topic for nursing home operators, even as we shift from a pandemic to an endemic care approach. Joining me to bring you all up to speed are Drew Graham, a partner at Hall Booth Smith, who created his firm's long-term care practice group, and Olga Katz-Shalfont, former attorney and national coordinator of COVID-19 claims for MedPro Group. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So let's start at the beginning. I know a lot of our listeners have questions about what the PREP Act can and cannot do, as do the courts, clearly. Uh, Drew, can you remind us what the PREP Act is and what it was intended to do? Absolutely. So the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act is the name of the act. It was passed in 2005, and it was really intended at the time it was passed to be part of our preparedness for uh, a biological chemical or, or an infectious threat. The, the story was, and I think this has been reported in many places, that President Bush had seen uh, and read a book by an uh, author named uh, Barry about the 1918 flu pandemic and was really interested in making sure that we would be ready. The concept was providing targeted immunity and financial protections for those uh, folks involved in countermeasures to uh, any threat that we would uh, run into. It just turned out that the first time it was really meaningfully used in a national way was was uh, was uh, COVID, but it was around since 2005 and had those uh, those goals when it was passed. So Olga, have you found the act has done what Drew just described being used during the pandemic? Uh, so yes and no. Um, the act definitely was used extensively during this pandemic by the Department of Health and Human Services to encourage um, various industries to step up and help um, stop the spread of COVID. And um, the PREP Act was the crown jewel in the arsenal of HHS to encourage that. Um, pretty much the PREP Act is one of the biggest reasons why we were able to get a functioning vaccine within 10 months of the out first outbreak of the pandemic. Pharmaceutical industries and all the other players who are involved from researchers at the lab to the manufacturers, to the contractors, to the distributors, to the pharmacies, to the healthcare professionals who are actually putting um, shots into people's arms. Everybody was um, given the protections provided by the PREP Act through um, HHS's Secretary's declarations, uh, the increase in production of PPE um, and the medication that uh, was released from the national stockpile, um, uh, the, the strategic stockpile, all of that was done partly to a, to a large degree under the protections provided by the PREP Act. Had it not been for the PREP Act, a lot of that stuff would not have happened nearly as quickly as it did. 
I know at the time it seemed like forever, but in retrospect, we know that it was done much faster than it had ever been done in our country's history. So from, in, from that standpoint, yes, the PREP Act did what it was intended to do um, as, as um, Drew outlined. Whether it will continue to do what it was supposed to do, whether the courts actually interpret the legal protections that the act provides, um, the way HHS wants the courts to do it, that remains to be seen. So tell me a little bit more. Um, again, you have an interesting perspective here as both a former healthcare litigator and now working for a major insurer. How did you get involved with PREP Act claims and what have you and your team been doing since uh, March 2020? And really, if you can um, drill down to how you might work with nursing homes, that would be really helpful for our listeners. Sure. So, yes, as you indicated, my background is as a healthcare defense attorney and um, I have worked uh, pretty extensively inside a couple insurance companies doing claims, healthcare professional liability claims before the COVID outbreak. And when um, the COVID outbreak took place within a matter of weeks, um, as as a company that insures facilities, including having a significant book of business insuring senior care facilities around the country, um, and as the news started coming out that the virus seemed to be affecting the older population um, more drastically than the younger population, it became very clear to us as a carrier that specializes in evaluating risk and risk of liability that the COVID outbreak might be a significant liability event for um, the healthcare professionals that we insure mostly for the senior care industry. So when that became clear, um, as a carrier, we decided to form a task force inside the company that would strategize and figure out when these claims start coming, how are we going to defend them? And I was asked to lead that task force, essentially. Um, and one of the very first people who I spoke with about this is Drew. And Drew introduced me to the PREP Act. And I started reading about it up until that point. I had never even heard of that law because it was truly, as Drew indicated, never effectively used before in this context of uh, defending healthcare professionals from liability claims. Um, and, um, you know, I dove deep <laughs> and have not come up for air since. I've been deep underwater with the PREP Act, swimming in those waters. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And it became, with consultation with uh, defense attorneys and appellate specialists and healthcare specialists around the country in different um, at different levels, it became clear that this law um, truly was intended to help in a situation like this, to help protect those people and those entities and those industries um, on which the country had to rely to continue working and to continue treating in the circumstance of an emergency for which the country was truly not prepared. Um, so to encourage people to step up and not stay home, um, the PREP Act provides immunity from liability. So that is the law that we are trying to use across the country to protect our senior care 
insureds when they are now two years later sued for effectively failing to protect the residents from getting COVID, getting sick with COVID, and in, in many circumstances, unfortunately, dying of COVID. So I think that's where things get really interesting because I, I've heard and reported, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, at the beginning of folks using the PrEP Act as a defense, um, there was kind of this sense that it protects us from everything. Um, that if any other claim comes during this time, during the public health emergency, um, even if it's unrelated to COVID, I think some folks uh, thought they were covered. Um, so, you know, how have we, through the last year and a half to two years, come to better understand how the courts are treating that? And um, Drew, maybe you can talk about some of the tussles as well with, with jurisdiction. Sure. Yeah, I think Olga did a really nice job explaining how this happens. I mean, and, but we have to kind of go back to this idea of when Congress initially passed this act back in 2005 as, as part of these uh, preparedness programs. I think at the time they called BioShield 1 and BioShield 2. And there was real concern post 9-11 and other anthrax. And, uh, you know, I think there was a concern that we needed to be ready. But we were preparing for a problem that didn't exist. So the act had certain uh, outlined subject to uh, declarations in the event the thing happened that, that the government was preparing for. And that's, again, what happened here. So in the act, there was, I believe, you know, fairly clear. In fact, you know, we believe extremely clear directive that what we needed was a whole of the nation response. And that's a term that HHS has used and others, but it captures this idea that we needed a certain agility within the courts to execute and, and effectuate these protections. And in the act, it, it you know showed a clear preference, if not a directive, for these cases to be in federal courts so that federal judges could decide and then any appeals would go through the federal court system. It was not a change, a permanent change in the law. It was it went back to this question of how does the country deal in the event of a crisis. In this case, it was a pandemic, but I think we all have to remember that we were preparing for other types of crises as well. Uh, fortunately, you know, they had not happened. And uh, but I think the issue ultimately will be and we're considering to, to we're continuing, I'm sorry, to address that is is who decides a huge question in the law. Always, uh, we believe. And as I mentioned, the act provides for federal courts to decide to so federal jurisdiction. But we've also um, it's an act that preempts state law so that state courts can decide and have, uh, frankly, over the last several months. But we ultimately think that the act's initial purpose, that is agility and response in the face of crisis, is, um, is better served by federal courts. You know, one question that I think maybe the listeners are interested in is going forward. They've done phenomenal work, but maybe in the back of their minds is what happens next um, and what will happen to both these protections like the PREP Act in the event there's another event. And maybe we can talk about that, but I think there's certainly interesting things to talk about relative to legislative change in the way either the act was drafted or how we are prepared as a country for the next time. Can either of you just uh, remind me in terms of the act itself? Obviously, it's a standing measure, as you, you talked about the history, Drew, but is there a cutoff? Is it, uh, in this case, only until the end of the public health emergency, or, or when does that uh, protection wane? Oh, I'll let you take that, but I, I, I will say that I think the public health emergency was just extended maybe day before yesterday for another additional 90 days. But yes, it, 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 interesting. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm sorry to step in here, but it's interesting if you look back at the declarations under the PREP Act, uh, you see that at the time uh, COVID happened, we were still under some very limited protections for certain um, uh, events. And I believe it was Ebola, that uh, uh, declaration of the PREP Act was actually still in effect. It's now lapsed, but again, kind of in the weeds on the act, but certainly the duration of the protections don't necessarily have to pivot off the public health emergency. Okay, did you want to add anything there? Yeah, so that's, it's actually a very interesting question and it makes the PREP Act sort of unusual um, compared to many other federal and state laws in that it's one of these um, laws that, um, you know, so it, it is largely an immunity statute, right? So it provides immunity from liability for certain actors, um, you know, people, entities, facilities, um, you know, sort of what we call legal ent entities, those things and people who, that can be sued. Um, so uh, it provides liability from suit, and from, uh, excuse me, immunity from suit and immunity from liability under certain circumstances. But before it can even be used, um, the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services, the federal agency, has to make a declaration of public health emergency um, and has to declare uh, that there is a public health emergency and then has to make a specific declaration under the PREP Act, essentially invoking the PREP Act. So you can think about mm -hmm. it. The analogy I like to use is that under normal circumstances, when there's no public health emergency that's been declared, the act is not in effect. It's sleeping. It's dormant. Right. And it has to be woken up. And the only person in the country under the, the way Congress drafted the law that can wake it up is the Secretary of Health and Human Services by doing some very specific things. Um, here, that happened. So um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services early on in the pandemic made the declaration of public health emergency, made the declaration under the PREP Act, woke up the act and, and, and indicated um, to which date um, that was retroactive. And Basically, as long as the declaration is in effect, the protection of the act continues. And as Drew said, just a couple of days ago, they extended this declaration is typically a 90 day declaration and they have to extend it. So the 90 days was expiring at the end of April and the HHS secretary extended it once again. So it has been continuously in effect since I believe January, um, middle of January of 2020 um, up until now. So the protections of the act continue until uh, the end of June, I believe, um, or July. At least as of now, yeah, depending yeah. on. So as of now, as of now, exactly. We thought maybe he was not going to continue it, but he did. Um, and, and there are good policy reasons why. Um, but in that sense, the act is unusual because once those uh, declarations expire and are not renewed, the protections of, you know, the act is going to go back to sleep in that the protections of the act are going to stop um, going forward on a going forward basis. We're still going to be able to use it um, for everything that took place while the act was um, invoked. Yeah, in, in Togo's point, I would just add that I think one of the things that in retrospect might have been clear in the way that uh, the country talked about this is really talking about the declaration uh, that w occurred during the, the COVID pandemic, 
not the act itself, because as, as August so clearly said, the act is just a framework for HHS to find certain uh, factors are met and then to define a scope of what we do about it and, and, and understanding the entire time everybody in the country wants this decision never to have to be made because when this decision is being made, then we're in the middle of a crisis. And I think, um, you know, it was it, it, I, one of the things that's been lost in some discussions about this is uh, how prepared we were for this, frankly, that we had this act. HHS re reacted very uh, promptly. Uh, they stated the reasons for it, and they, in this instance, gave a broad scope, and it covered a broad swath of providers and people and manufacturers and others just based on their perception of the scope of the problem. Uh, other times they've used the act, uh, two or three, four other times that it's been invoked. It was invoked in a much more narrow way, geographically and coverage and people that would be involved. Not to say that this uh, act doesn't authorize HHS in the future to react either broadly or narrowly, but understanding context is a really important part of this that we want to make sure that, that the McKnight's audience understands and really the broader country understands because it's so important uh, that the tool be, um, you know, the, the tool of the PREP Act, the authorizations be understood and then how they're used be appreciated separately. And, and I would add to that, I, I think just because the act is still active doesn't mean that there won't be challenges. Um, certainly, we saw kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, I think there was, um, on our perspective, less activity than we expected. Um, and that has started to shift, I think, some um, legal challenges. The numbers are, are rising nationally, um, COVID-related cases against nursing homes specifically, but against healthcare providers in general, too. So I'm wondering, uh, just a brief question in terms of um, statutory, like how long can somebody wait to make a claim uh, for negligence or something like that? Because maybe you haven't been sued yet, but you could possibly still. Um, and then the second question, I want to get into some of the, the federal challenges that we have seen. Oh, I'll take the statute. Uh, limitation. Of course, that's state specific. And I think any answer that we could give here would really depend on, you know, where an individual is. So I, I refer them back to their, you know, council and, and their states. Um, but in some states, we are getting close to the to the periods of limitation. Others, not so much. But again, that would be really a state determination, but one th that you're right to bring up as people should be aware of those dates. And don't forget that in some states, in many actually, during the period of the pandemic, the typical normal statutes of limitations for uh, negligence cases were changed. In some, they were extended. In some, they were told. Um, in some, they, they were suspended, meaning that you get extra time on the tail end. Um, and in some, they were shortened. Uh, don't forget that some states passed state liability immunity shield laws, and parts of those shields were shortening of a statute of limitations specifically for COVID claims, saying you can only bring a COVID claim. Not only can you not bring it unless you meet these certain extra requirements that don't apply to normal negligence cases, but all also, you can only bring it in one year from the time of death, for example, COVID death or acquiring COVID or alleged negligence, um, as opposed to the typical two, two and a half, three year statute of limitations that applies to negligence cases in our in our state. So you really it is a very state specific question and you have to consult with your local council on specifics. 
Okay. In some cases, you might be uh, clear and others not so much. So right. Olga, then if you can answer the, the second part of that um, at the federal level, what do we know so far about how the courts have reacted to assertions that the PREP Act is a complete preemption, which Drew touched on earlier? So complete preemption is a uh, legal term of art, and we have to be very careful how we use it. It is a jurisdictional concept that has to do with the idea that some federal laws um, are intended by Congress to confer exclusive federal jurisdiction. So you cannot bring, you as a plaintiff, cannot bring a lawsuit that touches upon that law in any way in a state court. That, that if you do, that case will be removed to the appropriate federal court, and that's where that case is going to be decided. That's what uh, we mean as lawyers when we say complete preemption. That's what it means. It's a jurisdictional concept. There's also something else called defensive preemption, and that's when Congress doesn't necessarily want to confer exclusive federal jurisdiction to certain cases, but says, you know what? Um, we want to completely occupy this field of law in that if you bring a claim as a plaintiff that touches upon this specific issue, we want whatever court is deciding that claim, be it state court, federal court, wherever that claim is brought, we want that court to apply this congressionally passed federal statute. We are specifically declaring that this statute overrides any other law in the land, state law, county law, you know, town ordinance, whatever. We want only this federal law that Congress debated and passed to apply to this issue. So that's an issue of defensive preemption. And I think um, so far, most federal courts that have considered the application of the PREP Act to COVID-19 cases against nursing homes and assisted living facilities have not talked to the issue of defensive preemption, whether or not the PREP Act overrides completely, as we say Congress intended, um, any state law to the contrary, state law that has to do with regular negligence claims. Um, most federal laws have only focused, as Drew indicated earlier, on the question of who decides. Does this case even belong in federal court or should it go back to state court? And the state judges can decide whether or not um, federal PREP Act um, completely overrides or replaces state law. Um, and these cases should be decided under the PREP Act frame, framework. Um, so that issue has only been really uh, decided by a couple federal district court judges um, in, and um, they've gone both ways on this issue and it's up on appeal to, to a couple different federal courts, federal circuit courts of appeals. Um, it has also been decided so far by a couple state judges, one in Connecticut, one in Ohio, um, and um, the ones in Connecticut and Ohio have decided that the PREP Act is a kind of federal law that completely replaces relevant state law and have dismissed cases based on the application of the PREP Act. So those uh, state judges who have looked at this issue substantively 
have agreed with the defense position that the PREP Act applies and the cases should be dismissed. But in the grand scheme of things, given the over 700 cases that are pending where this may be an issue, the few decisions that have been issued are a drop in the bucket. There will be many, many, many dozens more coming. So Drew, I'll, I'll let you jump in here then in terms of where does the PREP Act go from here and what can providers hope for? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question and probably one well above um, my pay grade, certainly. But I, when you look at the history of the PREP Act, all the uh, work done by the uh, those men and women across the country that prepare us for public health emergencies, we can see the work they did in anticipation of this event. And while things... Um, you know, some things went very well. There were bumps in the road. The standard of perfection is certainly not something that we want to hold them to. So I think what will happen uh, is as they continue the work that they did before uh, COVID and uh, they'll continue to refine, you know, our ability to be agile, our ability to respond. And I expect that looking at the act itself, so not necessarily this declaration specifically, but the act itself, they will look at it, look at how this has played out. And I think, you know, we can all be confident that all the agencies responsible for this will, will continue to work as they have in the past. And that we may see some refinements. We Many things may stay the same. As far as the provider community goes, I think they as, have done phenomenal work taking care of the people that they're charged with providing care to. I, I would encourage them to continue to do that and be assured that, you know, people, uh, like Olga's team and others are working very hard to make sure that we keep, you know, uh, our best people out front working hard to understand the law as it exists to provide the protections that were intended and that this is going to be, unfortunately, a, a, a long process, but that people are paying uh, careful attention to it and working hard on their behalf. So um, much, much, much more to come on the PREP Act as things evolve. Uh, but I think, you know, generally, um, assuring them that, that people are working very hard, uh, even though they don't necessarily see it. So. Oh, but you talked a lot about the oral arguments or, or the decisions in those state and a couple of federal cases. Did you see some similarities there or, you know, the, would the main similarity be the two state judges that you mentioned? Um, is there more to add to that? Yeah, no, the, the biggest similarity across the country right now is that most federal judges who are seeing these cases are finding that the PREP Act does not confer what you, we previously referred to as exclusive federal jurisdiction. So they've been sending these cases back to state court. Those decisions are on appeal um, in uh, seven different circuits, uh, federal circuits, uh, three of which have issued opinions already, uh, but other four are pending and many more appeals are being filed every day. So that issue of where, you know, as, as Drew refers to the question of who decides, that is still very much up in the air. And it's entirely possible that ultimately this issue will go up to the federal Supreme Court. Um, and ultimately, they will decide whether or not PREP Act confers exclusive federal jurisdiction. But the similarity is that federal judges don't want these cases. They, they don't want to open up their federal courtrooms to uh, healthcare defendants to litigate their cases in federal courts. They, they just don't want them. They don't want to see them. They don't want to overwhelm their dockets. They don't understand that as soon as they do allow these federal defendants into the courtroom, 
the next thing they're going to see is an application by the defense to get the cases dismissed under prep act immunity so it's going to be a very short-lived litigation but they don't they don't see past the jurisdictional issue um, and then in terms of actual um uh the actual enforcement of the prep act immunity um we actually see less resistance to that um we are seeing fewer judges um on, on a proportionate basis who are, you know, from the, all the judges who are actually considering the question of whether PrEP Act immunity applies, a higher percentage finds that it does compared to the percentage of judges who find that PrEP Act provides federal jurisdiction. So ultimately that gives me hope that when that question is before the correct jurisdictional judge, be it federal judge or state judge, the question of does PREP Act actually provide immunity from suit and immunity from liability under the COVID-19 pandemic environment in a nursing home in a case that involves a death from COVID-19 during the early days of the outbreak, I have a um, decent percentage uh, chance probability that um, the right judge will say, yes, it does, and will dismiss the case. And and I guess the, the main proportion that would matter might be a five to four vote eventually. I mean, it uh, could really go that way. Is there a sense if it gets challenged and taken to the Supreme Court, how many layers are left? I mean, how long could that take before providers really know a final answer on that? Well, um, given where the appeals are right now, it will probably not be until the next term that the cert petition is filed. Um, whether they, you know, if they grant it, assuming they grant the very first one that is filed, which is not at all guaranteed, right. it is something that will be potentially briefed and argued. Um, briefed next winter and argued next spring, and a decision would come sometime before, you know, July of 2023. So certainly a lot of uncertainty still out there. All right, Drew, I'm going to throw the last word to you. Some some thoughts for, again, for that provider that is just, you know, trying to navigate this. So many folks that that listen will not necessarily have any kind of legal background, and, and this is complicated stuff. Some, some sure. words of advice for them? Yeah, I think that that just be assured that people are working very, very hard. I think that, you know, as, while it is buried in legal nuance, there was an anticipation of how important back in 2005, uh, Congress could see how important our healthcare providers were, both through acute, post-acute rehab, long-term care, to the overall response of the country. And, and while this act may not be uh, perfect in this iteration. It certainly represents how much uh, the country values our providers. And I think ultimately we'll see clarification of this in a way that uh, that brings, you know, more clarity to they, their day-to-day -day activities. But for right now, be assured that people are working very hard and will continue to do so and that folks like McKnight will keep them updated on, on what's happening. Absolutely. Okay, I'll let that be the last word for today. But uh, again, not the last we'll hear about the PREP Act. So please, yes, stay stay tuned to McKnight's for full coverage on that. And uh, thanks again to Drew and to Olga for McKnight's. I'm Kim Marcellus. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.